0: Welcome to A Seat at the Table, a podcast bringing together feminism, dinner parties, female friendship and food. I'm Alex, your host, the creator of Spare Ribs Club, an intersectional feminist book and supper club which explores feminism and social justice through literature, art, music and food. Each episode, I invite our guests to take us through their perfect feminist dinner party, three feminist icons as dinner guests, three courses and three tunes being played on repeat. This week I'm very pleased to welcome Brie Graham. Brie is a food writer, editor and author. Originally from Sydney, she grew up in Singapore and has been based in London for the last 11 years. Currently she's the lifestyle editor at Career Media and writes the hit weekly food newsletter Dishes to Delight. She hosts podcasts, events and supper clubs and works across a number of projects from live events at Soho House to collaborating with brands on content. Her debut cookbook, Table for Two, was published by DK Books at Penguin Random House in January 2023. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So which three guests are you inviting over for your dream feminist dinner party?
1: Okay, so this was actually very difficult because I am at times a very indecisive person and three is it's a hard number to whittle down so i kind of i kind of just went just went rogue i just went for like gut feelings mm-hmm. on these and just made a quick some quick snap decisions mm-hmm. uh so my first guest is kylie minogue <laughs> i was listening to some kylie when i was thinking about <laughs> this some 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 vintage uh, 90s kylie which is my favorite kylie era um, and you know, as an Australian living in London, I do get a little homesick quite often, and so I think it would be nice to have an Australian at the table who's had mm-hmm. such an iconic music career and just career in general, um who's spent a lot of her life outside of Australia at the table. And I just love what she's doing. You know, you know she's really kind of broken the mold for what female musicians of her age and of her era are doing, and she's she's just an icon, so yeah,
0: mm-hmm. I. A great choice a
1: great choice and I think she'd be fun at a dinner party I think it should be
0: I think she' be a lot of fun
1: um number two is one of my favorite writers Emma Forrest mm-hmm. um so she's a novelist and a memoirist um, and a director and a screenwriter um and she, one of my favorite ever memoirs is um her book uh, your voice in my head mm-hmm. um and I just think she's she's just brilliant and I would love to have a dinner with her and just sort of pick her brains on her writing career. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, she's had such a really varied, interesting, long writing career. I think that's something that uh kind of unites, I guess, these three women. Um and my third is uh Nigella Lawson because the queen because I don't even need a sentence following that. I feel. <laughs> um she's again you know such an icon and again you know this really lovely long career that's so built on who she is, her values, and yeah, I just think she would be delightful.
0: Hmm. I mean, those are kind of three stella guests, to be honest. I mean, my Lawson is a British institution of cooking and like sexiness and wow. you know, those great things.
1: And she's a brilliant writer. I feel like, you know, obviously so much in terms of, you know, people's public perception of her as well is, you know, obviously a lot of people came to her, I think, you know, through her television shows, which are just so incredible and iconic, but her writing, she's just such a, uh, she's just so skillful Mm. um, in that side of things and the way that she, she brings recipes to life Mm. Through words, you know, you don't even, you know, so many of the recipes in her book that I've cooked from, and you know, I grew up eating from because my mum cooked from them, are the ones even without photographs because she just makes them so evocative and and you know makes you want to cook it, um, mm. which I think is such a skill.
0: And um, do you think that these three guests would get on?
1: I do actually. I think I think there's a unifying thread in there. I do. I think they're all quite a lot of fun. Mm. <laughs> is my is my is my perception from the outside. I think there'd be quite a few martinis and cocktails uh, <laughs> to start and then probably to finish this dinner party with them.
0: Nice. Are they, I wonder if Nogela and Kylie have met. I wouldn't be surprised if they had, to be honest. I mean...
1: I wouldn't be surprised by that either. I think there could, be, there could have been a dinner party at some point over the last uh, 20, 30 years with those two.
0: I'm sure, yeah, yeah. Um. And where is this dinner party happening?
1: I think it's. I think it's got to be... It's got to be in my garden in London. In um, yeah, it's, I've got sort of a little outsidey terrace bit, and I think it would be here. And I'd sort of, you know, if I had to host it, I I would I would be more comfy on my on my home turf. I think
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, it would have to be delightful, gorgeous weather. Um, you know, a gentle breeze, some nice sunshine. Yep. Um, but yeah, I think that would be that would be fun, and get them get them to sign my books and CDs while they're here. <sighs>
0: <laughs> would <Well, that, laughs> you let them drink anything first, or is that the first first port, port of call? Is is signing your books?
1: Um, no, I'd probably have to. I'd have to be quite inebriated to ask them to do that. So I think that would <laughs> be the end of the evening. I think. <laughs> so
0: what yeah. are they? What are you starting with in terms of drinks?
1: Okay, so I think because this is the this is the ideal dinner party, right? This is you know, let we've got to lean into to sort of the luxe of everything. Um, And my absolute favorite combination of things, again, um, being from Sydney originally, even though I've only really lived there for about six years of my life, uh, Sydney rock oysters are the best oysters in the world. I have been lucky enough to eat oysters on pretty much every continent and Sydney rock oysters are without any doubt, just the best. They're really small and little and sweet and they taste like the ocean. So I would want six of those per person Mm. on ice with a very, very cold glass of champagne in arms reach and lots of lemon, black pepper, maybe like a champagne mignonette sort of situation, maybe some Tabasco. I feel like Nigella's a Tabasco, a Tabasco lady. But yeah, that 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 would be to start. Um the most
0: delicious starter. Oh the best oysters with the best champagne is just it's simple but the best
1: they both have to be very cold is my is my spe- specification especially if we're outside on a on warm summer's evening I want the oysters to be served on ice nice and chilled and the champagne to be equally equally as chilled which would be nice and gotcha.
0: um, and what tunes are going to be on repeat all evening
1: again this was like torture choosing three because I listen to so much music <laughs> I I love music I you know only sort of maybe over the the last couple of years of, of doing interviews do I ever get to talk about about music and and how it's so important to me but it really is you know i mean when i was a teenager i wanted to be a musician i had no desire to be a writer when i was about 12 or 13 i thought uh, a musician was what i was what was my life plan um so the first gig i ever went to see when i was 12 almost 13 um, I wasn't allowed to obviously go by myself or just with friends. So I had to go with my mom, dad, and my brother. And we went to go see the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs um, at an amazing venue called the Enmore Theatre in Sydney. And I love Karen O. Again, she was she was um, maybe, uh, she, was, she was a close fourth on my list for my guests, for my feminist icons, because I think she is just, she is such an icon um, of that era of women in music. And so Maps by the Yeah, Yeahs is just the most, gorgeous song in any circumstance so that's my number one
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and I don't get sick of it I can listen to it on repeat over and over again um number two is Daydreaming by Aretha Franklin because again I just don't think you can get sick of listening to Aretha Franklin's voice um to just start so beyond stunning and she's got just such an amazing discography of, of work to listen to um and number three because I had to put it in because I've been talking to so many people lately and no one knows that I'm a I'm a secret Swifty and a huge <laughs> Taylor Swift fan, like a massive, a massive Taylor Swift fan. But I just don't. No one asks me about it, so I don't get to talk about it. So maybe I just need to do a whole thing about Taylor Swift. But um, yeah, Mirror by Taylor Swift. Again, it was impossible to choose one song, but this was the one I was thinking about. So yeah, they're my they're my three tunes.
0: Fantastic. That's a that's a good mixture. That's kind of some some funk, some pop a little bit of jazz are they kind of coming at different points in the night I
1: think so yeah I think you know maybe some Taylor Swift to to start things um maybe then some Aretha Franklin like over dinner and then there may be some
0: Yeah yes after that
1: yeah I think that's a, I think that's a good mix <laughs> um
0: and and how about for your main? So for my
1: main, again, difficult, but you know, I'm trying to, to build this picture of this like lovely summer's evening. Um, spaghetti vongole is just, again, I could eat it every day and not get sick. Clam- I mean, I, just lo- I love seafood um, and clams, I think are my favorite. I mean, controversial, as I say that, I'm already adding everything else up in my head and wondering if they really do come to number one, <laughs> but I just, I love, love clams so much more than sort of any other shellfish I think um so just a really simple spaghetti vongole, lots of chili lots of garlic lots of parsley lots of lemon uh, lots of olive oil and a little bit of butter to finish um mm-hmm. uh, and then bottle of again very cold uh ligurian vermentino to drink alongside because mm-hmm. I love it and it tastes like holidays mm-hmm. and then I think you know, to have a little, little, some things on the side, like a, an amazing, very ripe tomato salad. I want the best tomato that's ever been plucked ever <laughs> in my perfect tomato salad. Again, just with like a really simple olive oil, pepper, salt, tomato situation. Um, and then this last one I, I threw in, cause I do, I just wanted something fried amongst it. And there's this amazing restaurant that I pretty much go to, most years on summer holidays in uh in on Ligurian coast in Italy and they do pesto stuffed fried anchovies
0: oh so when you sent me your menu in advance I looked at that and felt immediately very excited because I've never heard of them before I love anchovies I loved anything fried and I Um, love pesto so all of those things together just sound like a dream
1: I, they're honestly next I'm going in three weeks and I'm already like waking up in the middle of the night being like it's only it's only 14 more sleeps. <laughs> so,
0: so is it kind of fresh pesto yeah. inside an anchovy? Yeah so
1: they sort of yeah. fill it. the anchovy, they sort of butterfly the anchovies out mm. so they're kind of flat and so most places you'll just get that sort of butterflied one you know breaded and fried but this place does two, like sandwiches them, mm.
0: two butterflies,
1: butterflied out, spread inside with fresh pesto, sandwiched together, then breaded and fried. And they are like j- just insanely good. And then lots of lemon and just like really crispy, really hot. And I could just eat that as the main to be, honest. I could just eat that just for every course because <laughs> it's so good. But um, yeah, they had to get in there somewhere.
0: Mm. I mean, delicious. Um, and what about for dessert?
1: And for dessert, I again, it, it's just imp- it's like choosing favorite children. Um, mm-hmm. but I went again with with something that I thought the guests would like as well, because you know, obviously, got to cater not just to my needs but to my guests. Um, Nigella is a massive pavlova fan. Kylie as an Aussie I assume is and Emma Forrest as someone with good taste I also assume is (laughs) Um, so I went for a passion fruit pavlova because I think pavlovas can go so wrong and can go so right so my main gripe with a bad pavlova is fruit that's too sweet Mm. I think you know you really need that that balance of things so I like either really you know tart raspberries or tart passion fruit and things like that um to get that balance so yeah a pavlova covered in lots of fresh passion fruit.
0: I mean pavlova is one of my favorite puddings and I think it's just a bit of a showstopper at dinner parties but also not super difficult kind of and time consuming to make so it's kind of a really good balance of the two that will impress people.
1: Yeah it is um that is exactly it it's uh easy to impress with a good pavlova.
0: I think that menu sounds very kind of nigella like there's some comfort food there's a lot of kind of luxury a lot of big flavors um and obviously the pavlova at the end yeah I think I I love it yeah
1: and you can do elements of it in advance it's yeah I think that's a that's a big thing just certainly for me and for, for my cooking is the sort of the the balance of you know w- what I can do, and that won't be stressed, but that is going to have this huge impact. It's like uh, even in the the book is split between two chapters, and the first chapter is actually called "Easy to Impress," mm-hmm. and it's basically like you know the, the things that you know will look just astounding on the table, and someone will feel so special because you've made it for them. But in reality, it really didn't take that long, and it only had you know sort of a handful of ingredients. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I think that's that's yeah a big a big thing for any dinner party for me.
0: So. Your guests have eaten. Uh, It's been a beautiful evening. The sun is now, I think, set. Um, What's next? Are you doing cocktails, more wine, champagne? What's kind of the next stage of the dinner party? I mean, if I was drinking
1: if I was starting with champagne, then drinking white wine, I mean, I would love something along dessert, maybe like a little limoncello and Amaro on ice. I love Amaro's. Um, my favorite one is called Kamati. So maybe a little glass of that. I had a dinner party on Saturday night and we all finished with, um, taste testing the sort of random assortment of bottles that I have (laughs) (laughs) on my bar cart. And so, uh, i finished saturday night with um almond liqueur which was amazing not like a amaretto not like a sweet one this is just like a, a white almond infused liqueur so that was very good but i think yeah something like that a little a little digestive to to finish and then i do i do love a coffee but then probably maybe even just some really good red wine a nice uh, a nice pinot noir or something to um to just keep the booze going keep the conversation flowing
0: so is it ending in in kind of conversation or is it ending in dancing
1: Oh, it depends. I mean, Fabric Nightclub is literally just down the road from my flat, so maybe <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> depending on on how it goes, maybe it could end there. Um, but I just I love I love conversation around a table, and I think that's the way most of my most of my evenings end. I I love that sort of time spent around the table when everything's finished and people just want to linger and and talk more.
0: I mean, I'd love to see Nigella and and Kylie dancing at Fabric. To be honest, I think it'd be hilarious. Yeah, well, that that would be good. That would be quite <laughs> what kind of time do you think it's ending if it's not if it's not uh, ending in fabric what kind of time is it ending
1: oh I mean I, I I like to think that nothing great happens after 2am so I'd say a, a nice one thirty, ish mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's a I think that's a good balance I mean I'm I'm an old lady I'm a grandma I go to sleep so early <laughs> to get up early but um yeah I think one thirty is a good a good in between mm.
0: I mean that sounds like a delightful dinner party I think it's the kind of evening they will be remembered definitely.
1: Fingers crossed maybe yeah. we will make it.
0: <laughs> I'd love to kind of talk to you about your love of food writing and and how you kind of got into your current kind of career what what first inspired you to write about food and cooking?
1: I think originally I mean I've, I've always sort of after I uh, abandoned my ambitions of being the next lead singer of the AES. Yeah. Uh, I have always written, writing was such a huge part of my life. When I was sort of 12 or 13, I, I won a big um, writing competition in Australia. And that sort of was the first time of being like, oh, like this is a job, you know, I, I could do this. And part of the the award for that competition was getting to be mentored by a novelist and and getting to, you know, spend a lot of time in a, in a community of writers. You know, I was only 12 or 13. So that really opened my eyes to it's a job it's a life it's a career that you can build um and then when I moved to moved to London when I was 18 from Sydney and was so homesick um and my mum is just the most incredible cook and food was such a huge huge part of our childhoods and our lives we lived in Singapore for 10 years and so exploring Singapore through its food and like in Singapore food is a national obsession food is literally everything it's all anyone talks about things are just thought out and planned around food around what you're going to eat next and I think that's definitely um was a big impact on on my thinking of it and so then then coming to London where I had you know I'd never lived in this hemisphere before, I had never sort of dealt with these sort of dif- different sort of seasonal shifts of cooking and different produce that I'd never even seen before. You know, I'd grown up in the tropics and was more used to sort of durian and dragon fruit, and here I was looking at gooseberries and thinking I've never even seen that in my entire life. So it was quite, it was sort of half exciting to get to cook with all of these new things, but then also trying to recreate a lot of the things that I missed. Mm. And I think it really just became that sort of marriage between the two because it was then what I really just started fixating on and and wanting to write about. Um, You know I think I look through sort of old diaries and old sort of journal entries back from that time and uh, so much of it is about food or you know even you know what I'm gonna I'm going to buy at the the market on the weekend or, or or what I'm cooking and how that kind of was so tied to where I was emotionally and things like that um so it is just I just see food and life and love and relationships and all those things is just so tied up together so I feel like I could never have not written about food it's sort of in hindsight looking back the, the obvious progression I guess of of my writing and my career
0: mm. I mean what, what do you want people to take away from your writing when they when they read it
1: I think two things I think you know it's the the greatest compliment that I can get from whether that's someone that, you know, reads the newsletter or has bought um, Table for Two is, you know, I'm not a cook, but reading that made me cook this Mm -hmm.
0: because, you know, so
1: so many people, because I am a cook and because, you know, a lot of my friends are and my family is, that's also, that's lovely feedback to get to have those people engage with my work and my writing. But when you do hear it from someone who's like, I've never cooked anything or cooking stresses me out or I hate cooking or, or whatever, but your writing or your recipe has managed to convince that person to, to go and and do something and and cook something for themselves. That is my like main thing I would love people to take away from my work if that's how they feel. Um mm-hmm. and then people who do love food, I would just like for them to see themselves, I guess, in in that writing in um and in those recipes.
0: I mean, in terms of its kind of connection to gender and feminism while cookbooks written by men tend to come from quite kind of professional chefs, I guess, um, this sector of food writing, which is maybe more centered in the home, is, is so often defined by women, particularly kind of young white women. H- how do you feel you sit within that space, perhaps subver- subverting that traditional idea of, of a home, home cook?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. It's something like certainly Thought about a lot when I was in, you know, the the design process of the book and 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 that element of things because it is, because of the the subject of my book because it is about food and love and you know it's called Table for Two and I I had so many things that I really were like hard lines when I was in the process of of writing that and then in the sort of the the post production sort of design process of it, I really didn't want it to be about romantic relationships. I did not want. I was so adamant that I didn't want it to feel like this is something to cook for your husband like this is something to cook for your boyfriend and really focus on sort of those heteronormative relationship ideals that so many you know I did so much research back into I I love I collect vintage cookbooks and you look back it's certainly books sort of between the sort of 30s and 70s and um you know it's how to please your husband it's using food as love in that way Um, And so I really did think about sort of the gender politics of that and how in every step I could make it so clear, you know, this was about sharing that table, you know, with, with your mom and cooking that thing that that meal that, you know, brings you close together, your best friend, your sister, your brother, whoever, whoever It doesn't have to be using food kind of in that way. And my absolute, again, favorite feedback is um, women who write to me and say, you know, I've just bought this for my partner and I've earmarked the page and he's going to cook them for me. I'm like, Fantastic. <laughs> great. <laughs> that, that's what we want. And the other thing I think I thought about a lot in terms of sort of that sort of gendered ways that a lot of um, home cook books rather than male chef books, let's say, are even d- designed is that they are, they do feel much more gendered. You know, I think there there might have been an early mock up of my cover that was quite pink. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you know, I said, you know, I I want my sort of six foot five, very sort of Australian male brother who maybe really wouldn't go and pick up a pink book in a bookshop, to walk around with a book in his hand and 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 want to pick that up off a shelf because I think that especially book design really is very gendered. I mean, it's moved a lot in the last in the last couple of years, but um, yeah judging a book by its cover often happens um i think with cookbooks specifically so yeah so it was something that definitely was aware of in the process of of um of writing it
0: so you feel the audience for your book is kind of genderless if if that makes sense like, i would like to about gender
1: i would like to think so i think you know certainly my um i don't know breakdown of sort of readers of my newsletter and things I think definitely probably skew towards more female. But there's so many male readers and writers um that I sort of hear from often. um and that you know, that is that's nice to have a balance, I think, um, mm. and to feel sort of, yeah, inclusive to all in that space.
0: Mm. How do you feel your writing and your career um as a writer has been shaped by? those more traditional gender roles that we've been talking about and maybe your identity uh, as a younger woman in that sector.
1: Totally, I mean, it's, um, yeah, significantly shaped, I think. You know, I, uh, one of my, you know, so I'm, I've am i never trained um, as a chef. I am not a trained anything other than writer, um, but one of my first jobs, um, it was actually my summer job at uni was working at St. John restaurant here in London. Um, again, not in the kitchen. sort of people sort of scan it, I think, and see it on a CV or something and just assume that it was in the kitchen. But I was an office assistant um in the head office here, and um you know, definitely had a front row seat to what it's like working in a in a big, high-paced, very high standard restaurant.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think you know it might have flooded with the idea of, oh, shall I shall I train to be a chef? Do I want to work in restaurants? Is that how I want to engage with food? Um, and I think getting to witness it sort of up close, definitely made that decision for me of that. It wasn't something that I would want to do. Um, but it's interesting, you know, talking to so many women in this industry in different ways, whether they're, you know, sort of behind the past in the kitchen or they're a food writer or they work in food PR or things like that. You know, it is, um, it is a, it is a gendered space and there is a really clear sort of split. I think, you know, I've been at so many sort of parties and things and you sort of start chatting to a certain generation of older men in this industry and you just watch their eyes glaze over as you talk about you know oh what's your book about and you say oh it's about food and love and I'm a writer and they're like why do we need a book about that what's that gonna who's that gonna help what's that gonna do and it's like yeah I think it's certainly a space that's that I've found comfort in because I couldn't find comfort in other in other spaces I guess
0: I mean that reaction is interesting because so they're kind of asking what how that book are they asking how that book might benefit the sector like what do they see as benefiting the sector or kind of making some uh, kind of change or radical change or or whatever
1: it's interesting that it's I think it's sort of twofold in that you know I mean this was a this was this this the process of of this book was probably 4 or 5 years in the making you know, I'm not a celebrity chef. I am not. Haven't been on Master Chef. I am not on. I am not a million plus followers on TikTok. I am really. I have a I have an amazing community built from my newsletter. I have a very small following on Instagram, but it kind of did. You know, it it took a lot of a lot of sort of work to to sort of even just get this book published because I'm not that. I don't have that. I'm not famous. Essentially, you know, I'm not. I'm not Jamie Oliver. I am not someone that brings a platform like that. And so I think, you know, there are sort of sometimes, again, with you know, certain a certain generation of of man who says, well, why, why you, why, why would, um, why would you get your book published when this man maybe has this platform or this other person has this and they're they're a professional chef and they've been doing it for thirty years and you know, and so I think there is an element to that um so yeah I don't know it's um it's interesting I don't know if it's them thinking that it's taking up space that could be filled by someone more qualified I think that is part of it I think you know again coming to it as a home cook Mm. is a different is a different thing of like how why should you be the one to tell people how to cook something when even you are not trained I think you know it's definitely early on in my writing career I remember being at an event and, and chatting to um, Felicity Cloak, who's a, a guardian food writer, mm. amazing, perfect comment. She writes lots of gorgeous books. And she she was never trained either. And I sort of said to her, I was like, you know, this was, was maybe seven years ago. i was sort of really just starting out. I had just started writing a recipe column for Rachel Koo's, um website. And I said to her, I was like, I feel like a major imposter syndrome. Because how, why, why should I write a recipe and tell someone how to cook something or how to do something when there's professionals out there, you know, who are, are, are qualified to do that. And she was just, you know, she obviously was like, don't be stupid. <laughs> you're, you're great. You don't need to be qualified. That's, that's why recipes from home cooks are so appealing, you know, like Nigella um, because you can make that accessible and you can make that understandable in a different way than someone who's trained maybe can. Um but yeah, I guess it's a, a process of overcoming imposter syndrome. Mm,
0: definitely. I mean, that comes up a lot in our podcast and in our discussions in the, in the club, in the, our meetings, like the yeah. idea of imposter syndrome. And it, it appears in all sectors, in all the industries where women work. Was,
1: yeah. And it does sometimes. I know, I know, you know, I know definitely know men that struggle with it, but it does feel in certain circumstances uniquely female. I think we, we are harder on ourselves, I think, in that way um yeah
0: just as a a fun question because you mentioned you started out working at St John do you have a favorite restaurant in London oh
1: again impossible choices all (laughs) these questions um oh and a favorite a favorite I love like I I mean a connection to St John uh Rochelle Canteen is just so fine I mean to spend I was there for a very lovely lunch a couple weeks ago and the weather timed up right with everything else and it's just the nicest place to just order endless bottles of wine and eat everything off the menu <laughs> um so I do love that again on a on a nice summer's day is yeah pretty special
0: well thank you so much for for talking to us today I loved your dinner party I thought the guests were amazing the food was incredible um thank you so much uh, and and I always ask my guests one final question uh, which is what are you doing on an everyday basis in a small way to become a better feminist
1: right. well firstly thank you so much for having me and thanks for coming to my dinner party mm-hmm. uh it's very lovely to to get to sort of imagine all of that um so i was thinking about this question i and it's something i haven't talked about yet but i um i'm a full-time editor at a magazine in london called career um and it's such an interesting you know, after after being a writer and working at different magazines and editor in a different way, I should now be in a position where I can commission work from from women uh, who are at the start of their career, and that is something that's really so exciting and important to me. You know, we're we're in a lucky spot in that we're we're a global magazine, so I can commission writers from all over the world, and so focused on having that diverse representation amongst our writers attaching the right writer to the right story whether that's someone who's got uh, that cultural connection with the person maybe they're interviewing or you know has that has that sort of that that knowledge that makes them the best fit and also just really just you know my career only ever started because of an editor giving me a chance when i you know was a little baby writer and had no experience and so i think that's something to really get to work closely with writers to help them develop their own writing in that way and to give them that platform to launch their own writing careers is something that yeah in terms of yeah actioning actioning my my feminist beliefs is something that's i get to do every day which is really such a joy
0: How oh, lovely um well thank you again Brie, for such a lovely conversation and and for joining us um yeah thank you thanks for having me